0: In 1997, there was an article in the Associated Press noting that the U.S. Treasury Department had planned to put into circulation a new-look, $50 bill with special features designed to thwart counterfeiters. After printing an estimated 30 million copies of the new bills at the cost of $1.44 million, it was noticed, however, that the bills had a flaw. There were small breaks in the fine concentric lines around the photo of Ulysses S. Grant. I don't know what concentric is, but there it is. That presented a dilemma to the Treasury Department. In the first year, a new bill goes into circulation. It is especially important that it does not have any flaws because persons unfamiliar with the bills may assume that the defective bills are counterfeit. One spokesperson for the Treasury uh, Department Treasury's Bureau of Engraving and Printing, Larry Felix, said, clearly, if you're going to introduce notes for the first time, you're going to make sure the notes are as flawless as possible, unquote. And though we as human beings are flawed, even to the point that our money can be flawed, we find this morning someone who isn't flawed, who doesn't have any marks, or stains. And he deserves all praise and glory for his flawless person and work. So I believe this passage this morning from Hebrews 7, 20 through 28 challenges us to bring praise to God for our perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. Bring praise this morning to God for our perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. And I would like to give you five reasons. And some of you are like, whoa, Pastor, how long is it going to take? We've got, we got lunch in a little bit here, Pastor. Don't take too long. No, five reasons from this passage of Scripture I think the author lays out for us why we must do this. The first reason from verses 20 and 21 is that Jesus has God's confirmation as high priest. Verse 20, insomuch as he was not made priest without an oath, And you'll notice as we've been going through this chapter that the author continually goes back to the Levitical priesthood to make comparison. And he does so the same in verse 20. He notes that the Old Testament priests had no such backing to their office. The word oath here refers to the process of taking an oath. You notice it says there in verse 21, For they have become priests without an oath. And if you look, and we looked at this this morning a little bit in Leviticus 16, but also in other passages, especially in Exodus 29:44, the Old Testament priests were confirmed in their office by means of their lineage, not an oath. God said to Moses all the way back in Exodus, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and, an alt- and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. So God laid out the establishment of the priesthood through people through a lineage, and what the author is doing is by making this statement, noting that Christ is made a priest without an oath, and the Old Testament priests are. He's noting that though the Old Testament priests relied on lineage for their confirmation, Jesus is better because he has something greater than lineage behind his office, and and, and for us as. As, as, as um, 20% of the Americans today, lineage really doesn't play a whole lot into our situation, does it? Now, we all have, uh, we can all access, for example, ancestry.com and look up our lineage and find out who our relatives were. I, for example, I am related to two U.S. presidents. Okay? Yes, I'm famous. You can see. You know, you can ask me who they are afterwards. Um, but on my mom's side, I'm related to two U.S. presidents. On my dad's side... Uh, I am related to a gentleman uh, that I don't know his name right now, uh, who, like Paul Revere, went through his area of New England and warned the colonists that the British were coming. So there's some, there's some lineage that I have, uh, even though it doesn't very help me very much today. Uh, but So that's what the Old Testament priests relied on, was their lineage. You look at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as the the exiles are coming back, you'll notice that the, the lineage in those books is important because it laid out who was able to do what, who was qualified to do what, especially in terms of the priesthood. And so the author of Hebrews is saying because Christ has an oath behind him, a promise from God, a confirmation from God, his priesthood is better. It's not like the Old Testament priesthood. So he knows that God confirmed the priesthood of Christ through an oath. Again, the author uses an Old Testament quote. Notice verse 21. For they have become priests without an oath. But he with an oath by him, who is to him, it is God, said to him, who is Jesus, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. So again, he goes back. This is the third time he's mentioned Psalm 110 to back up his statement that Christ's priesthood is ordained of God. Now, just a minor thing to note. Um, in the original text of this passage of Scripture, it does not have the phrase according to the order of Melchizedek. That was added later. But nonetheless, it's still the emphasis still is clear. Christ's priesthood is ordained by God. God swore it. God, God swore it and he will not relent. You are a priest forever. Which puts the unchanging priesthood in the hands of an unchanging God. Our, our verse uh, for the month that, uh, that I've been putting in the bulletin, Malachi 3.6, says, I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, or children of Jacob, are not consumed. So God purposed all the way back in eternity to put the priesthood of, God, of Jesus as better than the Old Testament priesthood and confirm it. And you notice also that by using that quote, Jesus' priesthood carries God's affirmation. You are a priest forever. There's no other validation that is needed. Jesus doesn't need to carry extra papers with him, more confirmation. He doesn't need to carry endorsements with him from multiple religious leaders. God alone is sufficient to confirm his priesthood and his office. So that leads me to ask a question this morning as we're thinking about the unchangingness of God. As we think about God confirming through a better way that Christ is our perfect high priest, are you trusting in your God who works in ways far above yours? Isaiah 55, verse 9 says this, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In doing so, God made Christ a better high priest, our more perfect high priest, through a better way. A way that was greater than the Old Testament law provided for. And isn't that how, that how God works, Right? God always works in ways that are better than our ways. And so can we not trust him to do things that we are so struggling to figure out? He works in better ways. His thoughts are better than ours. His ways are better than ours. And yet, why do we struggle to still trust him? God worked through Christ to establish a priesthood that was better than the Old Testament priesthood in ways that perhaps the Jews could not even have imagined. Again, the author is using a a random quote from Psalm 110, verse 4 to prove his point. And now he's getting these, these Jewish readers to think about, oh yeah, that makes sense. Hundreds of years later but still proves that God's ways are not our ways. So are we trusting God who does so? I know I struggle to do this. I you probably do as well. We try to figure th- things out. We try to make sense of what's going on. But there are times where we just have to stop and say, God, I trust you. Your ways are better than my ways. You have to figure this thing out. Secondly, from (laughs) this passage of Scripture, a second reason that we must bring praise to God for our perfect high priest, Jesus Christ, is that Jesus guarantees a better covenant. Verse 22, By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Now verse 22 uh, is, is an extension of the argument in verses 20 and 21, but there's enough here to make it stand on its own. Because the phrase, buy so much more, explains, explains the results of God's oath. Okay, So what is the result of God swearing to Christ that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? The result is that Jesus is now a mediator or a guarantee of a better covenant. And that is significant because the Old Testament priests operated under the Old Testament covenant, the law, right? First five books, you can read about the law. They made sure that the blessings and the cursings were applied as well as the laws were followed. But yet the covenant that Jesus guarantees is better than the old one. And therefore Jesus is the assurance of that better covenant. The word surety, we really don't use it today, is another word that means down payment or fulfillment of something. Ironically, it's the only time this word is ever used in the New Testament so it carries with the idea of both the guarantee, both the guarantee and the promise to carry it out. So it's the, it's the down payment and the promise to pay that's included. And the carrying out of that promise. So it's it's all wrapped up in one. So unlike the Old Testament priests who could only carry out the old covenant, Jesus both guarantees the new covenant's fulfillment and makes sure. That which is fulfilled is carried out. You know, I, would, I would draw an illustration from the idea of signing a lease on a car or a house. What do you do? Uh, we had the op- opportunity uh, when we lived in Ankeny, Iowa, to lease a townhouse uh, in, in that area. And what do we do when we, we, when we sign a lease? We promise to pay a certain rate per month for that facility. And there was still the possibility that we could have missed a payment or not made one totally for a month. And we would have incurred judgment or penalties for it. Perhaps you have missed payments on a car or mortgage and you've suffered for it a little bit. And while that possibility exists for us as human beings, Jesus never misses a payment on the new covenant. He never lacks to fulfill what is promised. And so he carries out the fulfillment of a better covenant. What does the word covenant mean? It refers to the legal agreement between two parties and ob- with obligations to be carried out and penalties to be assessed if there's failure to carry out those, um, those obligations. But here the emphasis is on the covenant of God's commitments to his people. Here, here's, here's why he uses the word. Let me, let me read you a quote from another commentary who's quoting another commentary. And I, I will try to explain this because he uses some, some interesting ways of saying this. But What is this covenant? It is, quote, a free manifestation of divine love, institutionalized in an economy. The idea of the word economy is a, a, a way of dealing with people, a, a, mode, a method of dealing with people, whose stability and consummation or fulfillment are guaranteed by cultic ratification or a worship process, which is the sacrificial death of Christ, and whose aim is to make men live in communion with God, to impart to them the treasure of grace and the heavenly inheritance." So so in other words, the covenant here is the system of worship and laws that God has instilled, which is guaranteed by the sacrifice of Christ, whose goal is to make men live in communion with God, giving to them the treasure of His grace and the promises of the heavenly inheritance. That's the word covenant. But it's not the old covenant. It's a better covenant. The word better means higher in status. So the Old, time, the old Testament covenant, the Old Testament law was good, but the new one is better. Hold your finger here for just a minute and go to Jeremiah 31. If you can, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. This is the new covenant that God speaks of multiple times, but it's found especially here in Jeremiah 31, and verses 31 to the end of the chapter. Of the chapter, excuse me. Note, look at this new covenant, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I would forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, here's, here's where the, the, the promise to keep the covenant on God's part occurs. Here's, here's what God says he will do. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. What's what God saying there? He's saying, he's saying, if that can happen, if heaven can be measured and earth can be searched out, then I will break the covenant with them, the implication being that it cannot. And then he continues on in the promise to just denote a few more things. More specifically, uh, pertinent things to the nation of Israel. But this is the new covenant that God makes with his people. It's so much greater in both content and status. The old one, laws, here's what to do, here's the sacrifices, here's how you were made right with God. The new covenant, the law of God is written in our hearts it's no longer people being taught about god through his word it's a personal intimate knowledge with god and that leads me to ask this question by way of application again we're working through the different reasons why why we should bring praise to god for for our better high priest our perfect high priest That leads me to ask this question as I'm thinking about Jesus as a a guarantee of a better covenant. Do you believe God when He says He has better things in store for you? This new covenant is a promise of God made all the way back in Jeremiah 31 that carries itself through the New Testament even to now where God says, I have better things in store. But how oftentimes do we go back to the old ways thinking that that will be sufficient? That That is where the the better life, the good life is found. But yet God has promised so much more. He has better things in store for us as believers, and yet we fail time and time again. I fail time and time again to trust Him, to believe Him. But He said it in His Word. He's, he said it numerous times in so many different passages that there are better things in store for us. Why do we settle for less when He has promised so much more? Maybe you in your lives can think of, of situations that you're going through where you're struggling to believe God. You know what His Word says. You know it's true. You know Jesus is better. But you're, you're settling for less. You're going after the old ways of pleasing God. You're, going, you're trying to, to make amends through the old ways rather than going through what God says and believing God has better things in store. Third reason that we must bring praise to God for our perfect high priest is that Jesus will always be our high priest. Verses 23 and 24. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Again, the comparison comes back. The reason there were so many Old Testament priests and high priests was because they were mortal. They had a beginning, they had an ending. The word prevented means to to keep something from happening. They're prevented from what? Continuing in their office. The word continuing means to continue in official capacity. The reason they stopped continuing in their role is because they died. Death ceased the role of, of those Old Testament priests. They were prevented, prevented by their mortality from continuing their ministry, but that is not so with Jesus Christ. Our high priest, Jesus, continues and will continue because of his eternality. But he, because he continues forever, the word continues here means to abide or exist and coupled with that word forever, it points to the never ending existence for the Son of God. He is not like the Old Testament priests who had a beginning and an ending. They had a birth date, they had a death date. He abides forever. And his priesthood is permanent. This word permanent mean, or unchangeable means permanent, excuse me. It, again, it's a, it's a word that's only used here in all of the New Testament. It expresses, uh, through implication, this word also expresses the fact that Jesus holds on to his priesthood and does not need it to pass it on, unlike the Old Testament high priests. They came along, one came along at a certain period of time, and then he died, and guess what? His priesthood got passed on to the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. That's not so with Christ. His priesthood is permanent, and he doesn't have to pass it on because He exists forever. So let me ask you a question as we think about this. Are you thankful that you have an eternal Jesus? A Jesus who does not cease to exist. You know, all, the, all the religions of this world outside of Christianity, their leaders, their founders, their idols... They have a beginning, they have an ending. But Jesus doesn't. He is eternal. He lasts forever. Even now, he exists in heaven as our high priest. A lot of times we get wrapped up in, in the love of God and, and all these different topics, and, th- and those things are good. Those things are right to talk about. But I wonder if our lives would be so much more enriched as if we meditate Every once in a while, every so often, on the fact that Jesus is alive today. And he will never cease to exist. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope, right? Jesus is now before the throne, interceding for us. He will never stop doing that. He will never cease to exist. All the all the saints and the old testament saints and new testament saints, they had a beginning period, they had an ending period. All the, all, the, all the religious leaders of this world, I can take you to their tombs. I can show you where they're buried. I can't show you where Jesus is buried because he's alive. He exists forever. You're thankful that you have an eternal Savior, Jesus Christ. Fourth reason I would give you this morning from this passage why we are to bring praise to God for our perfect high priest is that he is our salvation and our advocate. Verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This reality this, of him being our salvation and our advocate is based upon his permanent priesthood. That word therefore points back to verses 23 and 24. Because Jesus is eternal and he is alive, his priesthood is permanent, therefore he is our salvation and our advocate. There's always a reason behind Jesus' titles and works. There's always a reason. And so he leaves that for us this morning. He also said that his saving work is complete he is able to save to the uttermost. The word able refers to possessing the ability to do something, to save or to deliver. And when this word is used of God, when, when it's used of God, it describes the salvation that comes from eternal death. And how is he able to save? It's not that he's able to save. I mean, it would have been sufficient for the author of Hebrews just to say he is also able to save. That would have been totally sufficient. But he says to the uttermost. What does that word mean? The word uttermost or completely, um, yeah, completely is another way to say it, means to meet a very high standard of quality or completeness. It's not just meaning a standard. It's meaning a high standard. It's going above and beyond. Which again, doesn't God do that all the time? God goes above and beyond what we, what we would ever expect. And here so, he's using this word to point out that Jesus never saves partially, only completely. Jesus never saves partially, only completely. Now, an illustration of this word might be, uh, as you well know, before coming up here, I had the opportunity to work as a construction worker. Uh, for a carpentry construction firm. And whenever you have a job site that you're working on, most often you find yourself running into inspections, right? For any of you who've worked in that field, you know that inspections are common in buildings. And why do they exist? Inspections exist to make sure that every phase of the building is meeting the code, is meeting the expectations of those who planned the building, and those who are going to be inhabiting the building. That's why you have pauses in work, which were frustrating for some of us as workers because we're moving so fast, and we had to stop because, okay, it's inspection time, so-and-so needs to come in to make sure everything's working right. That's why you have inspections. As frustrating as they may be, we get inspections here. We have an inspection yearly, either it's a yearly or every twice a year, on our elevator. To make sure it's working properly. It's doing the job it's designed to do. Completely. Well, that describes what Jesus does. He saves completely. And not partially. He doesn't provide a partial salvation. And who does He save completely? Notice what He says. Those who come to God through Him. The word come here refers to, to a movement approaching a deity. In this case, God. It's the same idea mentioned back in verse 19 of chapter 7. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a, the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That's the word come. And how do we draw near to God? We draw through, this, through, his, through Him, through His Son. This shows the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way to God. It's basically the repetition of John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ is both the Savior of those who come to Him, but He's also their advocate. Notice he sends the end of verse 25, since he always lives to make intercession for him, so the completeness of his salvation is rooted in his advocacy for those coming to God. Jesus completely saves because he advocates, since he advocates for them. The word always, that phrase always lives, is constructed to show purpose. And it's that present tense. So He always lives. It emphasizes His eternality. Christ is living now to intercede for you and me before the throne. Reminds me of the, of the hymn that we have in our hymnal. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Our hope is, be, is rooted in Christ. And the fact that He's eternal, that He does not die, He always lives, points to the fact that we have hope. And because of Christ... We have intercession with Him before the Father. The word intercession here means to, to, to make an earnest request through contact with a person, with the person being approached. It reminds us of, of what Paul says in Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who a, at, is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding. For us. Romans 8.34. And the intercessory ministry of Christ is not just simply praying for us, which He does, but is also working on our behalf so that we might continually be in God's presence. So He's our salvation. He saved us. He is the way of getting to God. And He's also our intercessor, the one who mediates for us, the one who makes us are pleased before God to make sure that we are in a right relationship with Him so we may continually be in His presence. He does it for us. He always lives to make intercession for them. It doesn't say, mis- just, it doesn't say for a select few. It doesn't say for just that person and not that person. He says for them. And by using that phrase, He's showing that this is for those who are coming to God like you and I. So that leads me to ask this morning Are you thankful that Jesus completely saves? That the salvation that you have in Christ is complete, it's not partial. You don't need to do anything else, right? There's no addition to the saving work of Christ that you can do to make yourself better in His eyes. He saves completely. And that's the the person we should show to this world, right? We need to be showing to a lost and dying world that Jesus saves completely. That what He offers is complete salvation. He doesn't offer a list of requirements in addition to what He does. He saves completely and sufficiently. And are we projecting that Jesus to a lost and dying world? He completely saves. There's nothing you can do now that will make up for anything that is lacking in your salvation because there is none. Nothing lacks in your salvation. You are completely saved. And maybe a sub-application of that point is let's stop working like we need to be saved. Right? Let's stop working like we have to earn our salvation. Jesus completely saves those who come to God through him we have a complete salvation, a complete Savior. Let's not try to add to what He does. Because that takes away from His glory. Last reason I would give to you this morning of why we must bring praise to God for our perfect high priest is simply a repetition for you. Jesus is our perfect high priest. Verse 26, For such a high priest... Now he's getting to talk more about his role, his character. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Jesus is our perfect fit. Aren't you glad for that? That Jesus is our perfect fit as our high priest. The word fitting here means to be suitable appropriate. What what the author is doing here is he's using these following verses to sum up what he's talked about as Christ our high priest. And and he will develop that theme a little bit more in chapter 8. We'll see that next week. But he's summing up what it means to be the perfect high priest. And, And so what he's about to do is give us more reasons for that. He's not done. He is morally perfect before God and men. He is holy. The word holy means to be without fault before God he's harmless the idea of the word harmless is innocent or guilt guiltless there's no guilt to be found in our high priest he doesn't bear any sins he's undefiled means that that word means that he, Jesus is free from anything that would potentially cause him to be not able to serve as our savior and high priest he is separate from sinners that, that, the idea of that is to, to separate from someone. Depart from them. Make sure there's a space between you. The word sinners here refers to those who have sinned and keep on sinning. This shows Jesus' uniqueness because, that, because He is man, but He is sinless. And he's also having uh, exalted, having become higher than the heavens. That, that, the, the idea of that phrase there is that Jesus is exalted to a status that he now enjoys. And he goes on, he says, He, the sinless one, offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners. Verse 27, Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He didn't need to go through that process as we read about in Leviticus chapter 16 of first offering sacrifices for himself and then for the people. Why? Because he was sinless. He didn't need to do that. And therefore he's better than the Old Testament I priest. Again, bringing in that comparison. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering to the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Leviticus 9 verse 7. Doesn't need to do that. That's already been taken care of. And that sacrifice was done once for all. That word once for all means taking place once to the exclusion of any further occurrence. Once and no more. Jesus' sacrifice for sin was good then and it's good now the end of days, until eternity. It does not need to be repeated because it is sufficient. We jump ahead to chapter nine, verse 12, and we'll get into this in later weeks. Chapter nine, verse 12 of the Hebrew says this, "Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all." Jesus doesn't need to die again and again. His sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for all time. And let me pause and say that there. Aren't you glad for that? That Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient once for all. He doesn't need to be re-crucified again and again every time we sin. He doesn't need to be making atonement every time again and again. He made that sacrifice once for all. Notice also that His calling is greater. Verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been made perfect. The priests of the Old Testament had the law behind their confirmation, yet all the law could do was limit sinful men. They were appointed, the word appoints here means to to assign a position of authority. And the word weakness here means the incapacity of doing something or experiencing limitation. All the law could do would appoint weak men. Men who are insufficient, incapable of fulfilling the law. Yet the law appointed them to show someone greater. And so since the law appoints those weak men, God had to do a greater work. And He does. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son. The confirmation of God, the oath, Psalm 110 verse 4, came after the implication, the installation of the Old Testament law and it proves to be greater as as it solidifies Jesus as the perfect high priest. The word perfected. And I think a, a better way of understanding this is not that Christ was made perfect in in that he needed to be perfected, but in the, the idea that his role as high priest has been completely fulfilled. So the emphasis in the context is that Jesus is complete and nothing lacks in regard to his work as high priest. Doesn't need to offer sacrifices for himself. He has no limitations. He is the complete package, if you will, as our High Priest. And therefore, His calling is greater than the Old Testament priests. So it leads me to ask a question this morning as we, we, we conclude. Have you embraced your sufficient High Priest, Jesus Christ? If you're an unbeliever in this room this morning, have you accepted His once-for-all sacrifice as sufficient, sufficient payment for your sins? If there's never been a time in your life where you confessed that you were a sinner, that there was no way you were getting to God apart from Jesus Christ, and and accepted His free gift of salvation, you still stand condemned. There's nothing you can do to appease the wrath of God except only through Christ and His once-for-all sacrifice. Have you done that this morning? Confessing that He alone is sufficient to save you from your sins. So whether you're here this morning physically or, or you're listening to me through the recording, I would urge you to stop where you are. If you haven't believed and say, God, when I, I, I confess that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus Christ died to save me and that his sacrifice for my sin is sufficient. Would you save me from my sins and be my God forever? I challenge you to pray that prayer in faith. Not that prayer saves you, but believing what jesus says and then if you're a believer in this room this morning are you telling others about his once for all sacrifice and are you living like he made that sacrifice for you we have a message to proclaim to those who are lost and dying and the message is this jesus died his sacrifice is sufficient believe in him so whether you and i are sitting in a restaurant drinking coffee or we're at dunkin donuts or we're you know doing whatever Are we making sure to tell people about that once-for-all sacrifice? And oh yeah, are we living like He made that sacrifice for us? Are we making sure that in our lives that we are not living like we have to pay God back? That we have to add to our salvation? Are we making sure that the way we live, the way we talk, that we interact with our spouse and children and other relations reflects the once-for-all sacrifice? Christ made for us. We are flawed human beings who will never achieve achieve perfection. We try, though, but we'll never get there. Yet there is one who is perfect, and that is our perfect High Priest, Jesus Christ. His perfection must instill in us a desire to bring praise to God. I've given you five reasons for that this morning. Jesus has God's confirmation as high priest. God made an oath, He swore to Him. Jesus guarantees a better covenant than the old covenant. It's so much greater, so much more value. He will always be our high priest. He lives forever, He is eternal. He is our salvation and our advocate. His salvation is complete and he is our perfect high priest being appointed by God. He doesn't have any weaknesses. He is complete. So this week, let's you and I remember what God ordained Jesus to be for us. And let's praise him for that until the end of eternity.